Hey everybody and welcome to the ninth episode of the DCI. I'm your host, Jonathan Miley. In this episode, Brian and I got to sit down and talk with Joe McDonough of Blue Man Chew. He's the, the writer for that studio. They're currently working on a game called Card Hunter, which is a card collecting game meets a Dungeons and Dragons style game, all online in your browser. Really cool. Um, we, we got to talk about it. I've actually played it some since the interview, and it is indeed a really neat game. Uh, but Joe isn't just working on this. This isn't his first game. He's actually had quite a few different jobs. He's worked for LucasArts. He was actually one of the writers on the original Bioshock uh, and worked on some of the initial drafts of Bioshock Infinite. So he has a lot of insight on storytelling in the industry, and we get to talk about that. So uh, we had a really great conversation. We hope you enjoy it. If you want to find out more about Dark Station, you can do that at darkstation.com. There you can find our news, reviews, features, and, of course, the podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can do that at darkstation underscore com. And if you want to subscribe to us, we are on iTunes. We are the Darkcast. Finally, if you want to send us an email, you can do that at podcast at darkstation.com. Don't forget that we do have some games that we're wanting to give away right now. So if you want to ask us a question or give us some comments about the show, go ahead and send us an email. Again, at podcast at darkstation.com. And you may just get some free games. Um, if you want to find out more information about Card Hunter, we'll have links in the show notes so you can find out even more about that. Anyway, thanks again for listening. On with the show. atmosphere so if by the end of the show you're calling us honey well it'd be the first time but it it wouldn't be that weird Uh, good let's get the ground rules right well first of all i need to get my dog my dog out of the room because she makes very strange noises uh ashley could you take the dog thank you yeah she i've got a kind of a, a, a british staffordshire bull terrier that makes extraordinary ordinary groaning noises and growling noises and uh, it, it sounds like a satanic it sounds like I've been going through a satanic possession so I think that's too well on podcast right yeah let's uh, let's that's start a, you story. know what we don't want to alienate any fans <laughs> or, or, or rather we don't want to alienate them any further exactly yeah you yeah, know, yeah exactly if they were that far already then just don't push them exactly well nice to meet you both you as well. Yeah, absolutely. Nice yeah. to meet you. I want to just just lay it out for you real quick. I yeah. played this game for like an hour and a half yesterday. Cool. Damn. Good. You guys you like are awesome. it? I cannot yeah. wait for this conversation. Good. Good. Yeah. Well, I hope you enjoyed it. I mean, it's um, <clears throat> it's pretty nerve-wracking making video games because you never really know until the end if it's going to be any good. And by the time it comes out, um, you've spent so much time working on it that you've got no idea. You've got no objectivity yourself. So... Um, it's it's good. It's great to hear when people really enjoy it. Yeah, from from a guy who played who's who's played D and D since he was ten. You guys mm. absolutely nailed that. Moment. 
Well, you are the market then, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You spoke to me extremely. Good, good. Well, we thought we'd target a very narrow niche. That's our strategy for, for commercial success. Start with a focus and then, you know. That's right. So glad we found you. We were looking for you and about half a dozen other people in the world. So. There you go. Good stuff. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely, as I learn more about this game, I'm definitely going to be um, touting it to some of my coworkers because a lot of them play... Um, D and D. I actually do my daytime job is IT, so they they play a lot of D and D. So I'll be like, hey, you guys should check this out. Well, I, well that's good and, to hear. And, and listen to this interview that I was on. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is good to hear because we need we need a lot of good word of mouth. I think that's the only way we're actually going to succeed is if people people really like the game and recommend it to their friends. Sure, that's that's kind of how that goes. Um, but yeah, so I guess we'll actually get started on the uh, you know interview part of this. Yeah, yeah. That's why we're here. <laughs> For sure, yeah. So I, I guess if you could just, um, well, I, first, just... welcome to the Darkcast. Actually... Thanks for being on. Thank you for inviting me. Sorry, the, my, my uh, extremely loud dog has just charged into the... <laughs> he's back. Sorry, so I'm just, getting, just moving her out. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Um, sorry about that. Yeah, hi. No How are you both? No, no satanic sounds came through the micro, or microwave. Microphone, now or speakers or anything. So I think we're. This good. is how it starts. This, this is how it starts. I know. I know this is, we're starting on a high point at least. Yes. Can't, can't get worse, can it? No. No. I, honestly, actually, um, several weeks ago, we did an interview with one of the um, actors from the new Splinter Cell game, and it's the conversation started very much like this. So I have very high hopes for this interview because that one was fantastic. Good. Uh, <laughs> Do my best. Do my best. Uh, and there, there was honestly no sarcasm in that at all. I truly, this this is off to the best start ever. Good. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, thanks for being on. Uh, if you could just tell us who you are and what you do at Blue Manchu. Fantastic yeah. name for a studio, by the way. That's yeah, and I, it's got an interesting story behind it as well. My name's Sean McDonough, and I'm I'm a director of Blue Manchu, and my, basically I'm a I'm a game designer, and I'm I'm the writer on on a game called Card Hunter. And um, Blue Manchu is a really interesting and weird company. It's a bunch of us who worked together on the original Bioshock. Uh, the, the guy that founded Blue Manchu is, is called Jonathan Che, and uh, John was Ken Levine's business and creative partner for 10 years at Irrational. And uh, after, after working on Bioshock, he decided enough was enough of working on big AAA games, and he decided to retire. And uh, he decided to be a chicken farmer, believe it or not. They decided that what he wanted to do was... <laughs> yeah, I know. What do you do when you make, after you make Bioshock? You... And- you re- you know, you I, I, thought, chickens, right? so, I, I thought the story of the the doctors leaving Bioware and you know becoming beer connoisseurs <laughs> was odd, but no, that takes this, the cake. Guys, uh, this is what making AAA games does to you, right? It really, it, it, well, I guess you don't leave them too, you, know? <laughs> you, you, you don't leave as the man you came in as. Right? So, so anyway, anyway, so John went off and did this and got bored, and then what he decided to do was it's a bit like the Blues Brothers was get the get the band back together and get a bunch of his old colleagues and friends back together. So there's Blue Man Shoes about seven or eight of us at any given time. We're spread out across four time zones. A bunch of guys in Australia, a bunch of us in the States, and um, we've been doing this for two or three years. We've been working on this game, uh, Card Hunter, for two or three years. Good deal. Awesome. Uh, now, you mentioned that a lot of you are from um, from Irrational. Uh, what other studios or, or games have you kind of worked on previously? 
Yeah, so um, I'm, it's a very, very interesting and weird group of people. I mean, you know, the, the core group of us were Irrational together. Um, after I left Irrational, I went off to LucasArts and I was the creative director of the whole company. And then after that, I've just spent a couple of years working at PopCap, uh, where I was in charge of Peggle, which was amazing. And look, you know, it was really amazing. PopCap is an amazing company. I learned an amazing amount of stuff there. I was very fortunate to work with some super interesting people. Um, we got a couple other cool people, like this guy Farbs. There's a guy called Farbs who is, a, is a, he's from the indie scene and he made a game called Captain Forever you might have heard of. And then um, finally, we, we um, because we're making a collectible card game, one of the things that's very difficult as a, as a gamer is, you know, is when you, you know, our experience is that we we were first-person shooter game designers, and, and yet, you know, in our free time, we'd play strategy games and card games and board games. And so, what we wanted to do is was was make was make a strategy game and a CCG. But the thing is, it's difficult. Is that there's a big difference between playing games and making them. And so, you know, we know we're pretty good at making first-person shooters. But we thought we're making a CCG, a mashup CCG. We need somebody who really knows their stuff about CCGs. And so, we we went out and um, had a chat with Richard Garfield who made Magic the Gathering and um, we were very lucky he decided to sort of join the team as a, as a consultant game designer um, and he's you know he and this guy called Scaff Elias who also worked on Magic have, have been a big part of the team so yeah we've got a really interesting mix of, mix of people it's been a pretty pretty interesting project in fact one of the hardest things guys is that we have three different types of English being spoken at any given time we've got straight <laughs> Americans and I'm the only Englishman in the whole group and I'm, I'm <laughs> I'm outnumbered, and so uh, it's a, you know there, there's a lot of scope for confusion when we use the wrong words. <laughs> sure. Uh, any examples? Any words that get thrown around that just none that are decent and should be used. <laughs> in- I got to say, I got very confused when somebody, uh, one of my American colleagues, suggested that we have a hoedown. That, that there was. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I mean, you know, like. What's it called? Uh, whose line is it anyway? The hoedown was a big thing there. But like, I think it probably... was all over there. And that dude was all kinds of English. <laughs> it, it's, it's true. It was an awkward silence when it was suggested. Let's put it like that. <laughs> so let me. I'll throw out the one English word that I know. It was not the dog's bollocks. Oh, that's a good. No, that is a great. The dog's bollocks is a great expression. It's totally illogical, but when you get into it. You know, you, you kind of, I, I don't think we should probably not, we shouldn't probably explain exactly what it means, should we? But it, it just means something that's very good. So if you describe something as the dog's bollocks, that means it's a very, very good thing. <laughs> Which Everyone's is rushing off the internet now <laughs> to look exactly what it means. But actually, it's from, do you know what it's from? It's from, there was a very, a very famous British satirical comic in the 80s and 90s called Viz. And um, it was famous because it was, it was, an, it was, incredi- it was incredibly, um, black uh, and very funny and really quite obscene and it was sort of a it was almost like a kind of a postmodern take on the comics that we read as kids and um they it coined a bunch of really popular expressions and the dog's bollocks was one of them so go and look up the dog's bollocks and also go and look up viz viz if you want to if you want to be amused viz is a very is, a, is an excellent thing to check out all right i have to say the only reason i know that is uh just off of eddie izzard and right. he made a, a, a joke in his uh in his circle circle performance where uh, he said you could go up to the queen and you could tell her that dress queen it's the dog's bollocks and she'd go thank you it kind of looks like the dog's bollocks but it is the dog's bollocks <laughs> <laughs> he is a very funny man he's a very funny comedian 
All right, now that we're done, so, yeah, we're all yeah, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to how to you know move on <laughs> from that. From that right? uh, <laughs> Let's get back to video games, shall we? <laughs> I do think we found a perfect title for this episode, um, but <laughs> <laughs> moving on from there. Um, so you've worked on a number of games, uh, obviously Bioshock, um, and then Peggle, which yeah. seems kind of crazy to go from yeah. Bioshock to, to Peggle. Can you uh, tell us a little bit more about kind of that transition of, you know, was, moving was, from the AAA to the indie, all that was, kind of stuff? It was, it was very confusing, you know, because for, for, for like five or six years of my life, I was in meetings. I remember one meeting at Rational, the, the meeting title was Blood. That's the only name. That's it. I looked in my calendar <laughs> and it was Blood. And it consisted of two hours of arguing about the viscosity of blood, the, the shades of blood, the splatter effects of blood. I mean, I, I'm not kidding you. And then, so, the, so then that was always irrational. And then one day I woke up and I'm in meetings about Peggle and it's all about rainbows and unicorns, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was a pretty weird... Like, get over to the guy next to you and go, hey, where's the blood meeting? <laughs> yeah, they got, kind of looked at me strangely. No, I mean, when it was, does, you know... When does the little gopher explode? I'm lost. <laughs> that was it. I mean, you know, it was actually a very deliberate move because... Um, after Irrational, I went to I went to LucasArts and worked on a bunch of big Star Wars stuff there. And and I've got to tell you, you know, about sort of 2000 and sort of 2010, 2011, um, I just teams were getting bigger. Like they were getting, you know, like they were getting 150, 200 man teams. The 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 job of making working in those teams was a lot less fun because. It was all about management. It was all about meetings. It was all about you weren't really involved creatively very much. And and what I saw was um, a future where um, there were going to be fewer AAA games and there were going to be fewer jobs in AAA. And I and and finally on top of that, I actually got bored of working on first-person shooters because I'd been doing it for so long. And so I thought I thought was I needed to really. I needed to find a bunch of guys who could really take me back to school and teach me some new things. And so I sort of looked at PopCap as a chance to really sort of, you know, go back to school and get, and, and it was, um, and I got schooled. But um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a great Winston Churchill quote, which I like. Which he said, I think he said something along the lines of, um, I, always, I, I always like learning, but I never enjoy being taught. And, you know, it's because it's hard, because you, you have to, basically, a bunch of the things you think you know are no longer relevant. And so it was, a, it was a pretty dramatic transition, but it was really, really amazing. And I was very fortunate. I worked with Jason Kapulka, who made Bejeweled, George Fan, who made Plants vs. Zombies, Sukbis, who made Peggle. I mean, you're working with those guys every day. You know, it's it's terrible in that you feel really stupid, but it's also wonderful because you get a, l- a little bit of the magic. Hopefully, rubs off on you, and you can you can learn a lot from them, right? Yeah, absolutely. And the, you, you're talking my language with Plants vs Zombies and Peggle, and I mean, yeah, I, especially going from like a first person shooter to the stuff that PopCap does, I could yeah. absolutely see getting schooled about stuff because those yeah. guys are complete pros. Yeah, right. And but you know the thing is about you know I was a huge fan of their games before I went. I mean it's, and um, I've got this thing about uh, Peggle. I think is one of the greatest games of all time. And I think that um, there's a great um, Dr. Johnson quote from the 17th century. He said, "Tired of London, tired of life." And I I think that about Peggle. I'm like tired of Peggle, tired of life. Like and so I think as a as a game designer, if 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 what you really want to do is make amazing things that are going to touch people and move people and and just things that people are going to remember and are going to treasure. And it's impossible not to look at Plants vs. Zombies and Peggle and think, I really wish to God 
I could be involved in those games. I really wish I could be part of the teams making those games. I'd like to meet those people. I'd like to know how they do it. And so it was, yeah, it was a kind of a, a really weird left field move. But on the other hand, it, it seemed completely natural as a, as a game maker to want to find out more about how they made it and to be part of that, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Expand your horizons. Increase the amount of things that you can do. That's right. and, and so I went from being very popular with 15-year-old boys to being very popular with 42-year-old women. <laughs> I've that heard was... they're experienced. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm talking video games here, by the way. But... Hey, I'm just saying, you know. <laughs> Let's just get this very clear, you know. But like, yeah, it's kind of, it was very, it was a, it was a mind-boggling transition. And I was, I was very, very fortunate to be part of it. And uh, yeah, I'm, I really, I learned a ton of stuff and hopefully we'll be able to, we'll be able to see some of those things that we've learned and in the game that we're working on. Well, good deal. Um, now, you on Bioshock, you were one of the uh, the writers, correct? That's right. Yeah. Um, so, so are, are, is that part of your your role um, at Blue Man Chew as well? Yes, it is. Okay. So I'm, I'm I'm the writer of the story of um, of Card Hunter, and um, you know, obviously, you know, I, I I think my proudest moment in in my in the whole career is that Ken Levine named uh, the pub in Bioshock One after me. So if you go into the fisheries level, there's a there's a pub in there called the Fighting McDonald's Tavern, and um, for me that's like gaming immortality, right? Like I think I, I'm not sure my mother agrees with that, you know, but uh, but I think I think I feel that might have actually achieved some of my life. And so yeah, I mean, I I, I did a bunch of work. I I really sort of helped Ken Levine um, edit edit the story and, and I worked with him. I was, you know, obviously incredibly lucky to work closely with him. And then, um, you know, after Bioshock 1, I went to Boston and worked on Bioshock Infinite. I was in charge of the story for Bioshock Infinite for a year. And then um, bringing up to current date, I'm now, I'm the guy that's in charge of um, writing this incredibly serious and moving story that underpins <laughs> Card Hunter. And, you know, it's, it's, as, it's as philosophically deep as... As by a shark one, as I'm sure, as you will as you will find out if you play it. Absolutely, <laughs> I, I can attest to its deepness. There's a there's a level between the uh, the younger brother that serves as the dungeon master and his older asshole of a brother that's <laughs> that definitely speaks to. I mean, it's almost like Booker and Elizabeth all over again. Just, just out of curiosity, since you said you did work on Infinite, uh, how much of what you worked on actually kind of ended up in the end product? Joe. Joe? Oh, did I? Did you lose me? Yes. <laughs> yeah, we oh, did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was blathering on in silence for that. Oh, that's all right. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> So yeah, he could. So I don't know where I, I, I I'll pick it up where where I think I, I lost you. Um, yeah. Um, before Bioshock Infinite came out, uh, Kenovin called me and asked me what I thought of the game because uh, he was really interested to know how it had changed and how it differed. And um, it was. I mean, it was. It, it had changed enormously. I mean, it was a pretty long project, like four or five years. And the thing, one of the things that I'm not sure people know in in the public generally is that that games do change so much. I mean, like Bioshock 1, when it, it, the early prototypes of Bioshock 1 were about um, Nazis on a desert island. And so, oh, you know, wow. games go through giant shifts. And, and Infinite, Infinite, was, Infinite didn't go through that kind of jump, but there were some very dis- significant um, thematic changes um, to, the, to the story. And um, 
you know, lots of things were, 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 were there. It was very interesting seeing the things that had survived, like the characters survived, the, the world that had survived. But it was, it, it got, um, there were some very controversial things that got, got taken out of it. I mean, I probably shouldn't mention them because Ken will oh. kick, kick, kick my ass. But there, was, <laughs> there, was, there was one moment that I was disappointed didn't go in because I thought, I, I, I know why he didn't put it in, but it was, um, I'm not, I, I can't share it, but it was, it, you know, it, I, I, it was one of those things that I think it was, it was sort of Mass Effect 3-esque. Like you remember that, you know, the original ending for, Bio, for Mass Effect 3 was, was so dark that that caused such an outrage amongst fans. I think that if he'd stuck with the ending he intended to, it would have been like that because it was, it was kind of absolutely appalling and just you know, wow. like, oh man that, that sounds delicious. wonderful because <laughs> yeah. i hated the ending of that game <laughs> did you really okay right i, I mean i, I, I did, did. Not we're, it we're of two different camps we are I... yeah well it, it but, yeah i mean uh, yeah i mean i know you know if you think the sort of holy grail of, of game designers is to make things that make people feel things well i know that this would have made people feel something pretty <laughs> extremely dramatic and you know i think he was probably pretty terrified because you know the internet's a pretty crazy place right it so it, it, it kept, you know you think all the death threats have been getting recently game designers and writers and stuff but um yeah it, it's it's i mean it's it's always easy to look back on things and and it's and look wonder what if and how, how did it all turn out i mean i i i, I think that they did an amazing personally i think they did an amazing job i think that bioshock infinite is an is an incredible world an incredible experience and and i, I think it's so refreshing that people like ken are doing things like that because you know there, there are so very few risks are being taken with the big big triple a games and that's because it's so they're so expensive um and so you know the fact that he's you know writing about you know making a, a 75 million dollar game about quantum physics and about you know Amer- you know american american imperialism at the turn of the century that's kind of amazing right mm-hmm. that's so ballsy and brave and yeah. and I, I i'm really grateful as a gamer and as a game designer that that they're, they're doing those kind of things but it's you know it's not for everyone right mm-hmm Oh, it's not. It's not, as it as is proven here in this podcast. Yeah, and and the thing is, nothing can be. And it's when you try to make everything for everybody, then you end up getting a lot of watered down stuff. So, yeah, gotta definitely what, appreciate the people that that stick their necks out for stuff. Yeah, and that's what happens in ninety percent of the industry because mm-hmm. the, the games are so expensive now that you you yep. have to you have to make games that appeal to the majority, the largest possible audience. Mm-hmm. Which means you have to anything that's even slightly controversial or different or risky or challenging will get taken out. Mm-hmm. Which is why tons of games that are almost exactly the same and um i don't know about you but i'm i'm i always want to play new things and have different experiences so i i applaud that i applaud that bravery absolutely absolutely Absolutely. um so as far as writing goes in video games uh how did you actually get into writing for video Mm. games Mm. kenavin rang me up late one night and said said mcdonald i need some help (laughs) <laughs> I'm stuck. <laughs> Stay up late and help me with this. And I went, oh, okay. I'm not really a writer. And then, um, yeah. And so, I mean, that's pretty much you know, the way it works in the industry. You know, you sort of get these. You get these. You know, you, there's a problem, and you put your hand up and offer to help, and you have to sort of learn through making big mistakes. And um, you know, it's. I was very fortunate to spend a bunch of time working very closely with him and observing what he does and how he works and and sort of helping manage that process with Bioshock Infinite and then and then you know so I you know it's it's difficult you know you I'm still not really convinced I'm a writer but I 
if I'm honest. But some, but somebody Absolutely. has to do it, right? Somebody has to do it. And I think, I think the advantage I have over most writers in the games industry is that, um, is I'm a game designer first and foremost. So I, so, so uh, you know, a lesson I took um, from Ken himself is that you know you've got to realize as a writer in the games industry that the majority of people who play games aren't going to give a fig about your story mm-hmm. and so you've got to really the it's the, the most important part is not the story itself but it's actually the method by which the story is delivered and sort of really embracing that and appreciating that and and working working a store creating a story that will work around the constraints of the experience and so you know for instance in card hunter um, I think every writer's natural instinct is to go off and write, uh, you know, you know, the next great American novel about their, this wonderful world that they've created. But, yeah. but, you know, the thing is, I know that most people do not give a damn about my story. And though I, though I may be sitting at home weeping as I, as I, <laughs> with this knowledge, it's actually really important because it's about the game, right? Like people want to be able to just, I know that people just want to get to the game. So what I don't want to do is have tons of screens that people have to click through before they actually get into the game. So it's, it's really, you know, the sort of, I think the driving philosophy is, is, is less is more. And particularly when you're working in a very a low fidelity environment like we are, like we don't, we don't have the advantage of, of um, 3D models and, and motion, ca- motion captured animation and, and indeed even audio. So we're working in a very low-fi environment. So you have to be really spare because you, you, don't, you, know, you don't want your story to get in the way of the primary experience, which is a game. Because I think and I can hear you know, writers around the industry you know, just going to, go crazy when they hear me say things like this but it's like i feel as a as a game designer as a writer that you know if i want a really amazing narrative experience i'm going to read a book or i'm going to watch a movie like i I don't think we're in a place yet in the games industry where we can surpass what those media offer in terms of story but i do believe that we can offer something truly unique when when you have an amazing game that is blended with a with a very spare story which speaks to the game and supports the game and i'm hoping i'm hoping that's kind of what we've we've done with card hunter is that this the story is there the story and the art and the gameplay there as one as a single whole um, and they're there to support each other. And what they're all about is about supporting this this feeling of being 10, 11 years old and discovering tabletop board games and D&D and indeed games for the first time and the excitement you felt at discovering those things and playing those things with your game, with your friends. And and so that's that's sort of, that's the role of the story with with, with the game. Mm-hmm. So what what are some of the challenges that you faced in writing this story for... You know this yeah. game that's sort of based on a tabletop game. I mean, it's yeah. a game based on a game. What what are some of the challenges you've you've experienced in that versus something you know like Bioshock that's a story driven game? Right. Well, most. I mean, first of all, te- the technical challenges are immense because you know Bioshock is a you know Bioshock One was a seventy million dollar game. You've got armies of programmers around to build these wonderful tools that will allow you to implement your story in a in a very sort of a very, a very sort of sleek and painless fashion like um with card hunter you have to imagine that here i am sitting in my study in seattle um <laughs> having to fiddle around with um having to having to fiddle around with my sql um, <laughs> databases and servers and and scripting languages because we haven't got any we haven't got any people we haven't got there's like a couple of couple of programmers in the whole project so you, it's a much um it's a much more um challenging technical environment and i'm technically utterly hopeless and so 
Um, it's been, it's kind of embarrassing. And, and you know, of course, the guy I'm working with, John Che, is the most brilliant guy I've ever worked, I've ever met in the games industry. He's got, he's got five degrees. He's got a doctorate in neuroscience from, from Boston University. And so, you know, here I am, I have to ring him in the middle of the night and saying, uh, with some really elementary technical challenge that I'm struggling with, and I, because we don't have any, you don't have any IT, we don't have any QA guys or anything. So, so the, the technical challenge you're writing the story has been immense um, and it's, it's added a vast amount of time to doing it. Fic- fictionally um, the challenge is, has been that um, I think the biggest single challenge of the fiction has been that you know, Card Hunter is a love letter to the golden age of Dungeons and Dragons. You know, it's late 1970s, early 1980s and the thing about that era, if you, if you go back and look at like early D&D, you look at like the player's handbook of the Dungeon Master Guide, there, it's, it's it, you get these two feelings. One, you get this like amazing warm feeling that you had when you were a kid of discovering this stuff. Like it was like a, you know, like I always say, it was you know, it was when my brother bought home the D and D basic set. It was like an atom bomb went off in my mind. It just it, it had such an incredible effect on me. And so what you're trying to do is you you really are trying to evoke that feeling in in the player. You're trying to take him back there and make him feel that. However. There's also a second part to it, which is when you look at the player's handbook, the DM's guide, you realise how absurd a lot of it is and was. You look at the, you look at the crazy ass art, which is, it looks like your younger brother, you know, your younger brother made it, right? You you sort of read some of Gygax's texts, and you realize it's so incredibly dry, and it's got all these weird quirks to it. And then you sort of think back to actually playing D and D, and you think about all those, all the sort of struggles you had with um, rules lawyers. Yeah, rules lawyers, dungeon masters, you think about all the other things that were going on in your life at the time. And so the challenge has been to write a story which um, is fundamentally lighthearted and is about the story about playing games and is kind of has a lot of in-jokes and, and is sort of really sort of taking you back there, but, but is also deeply respectful to the experience. And, you know, the line between those two things is, is razor thin because you, you always want to be laughing with it, not at it, right? Mm-hmm. And I hope we got that balance right. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm a bit worried about when my brother plays plays Card Hunter because Melvin, the <laughs> older brother, also is, is is inspired largely inspired. And is it mean? Because my brother was never like that. It's like the, you know, the older brother. Basically, you know, you know the story of Card Hunter. It's about a guy called Gary who's got two. He's a dun, he's a first time dungeon master, and he's got two big problems in his life. Like, first of all, he's trying to break free from the the, the shackles of the psychological domination of his his bullying Noel Grognard older brother Melvin. And then on the other hand, who owns the card under set? And then the other challenges he's got is he's he's completely in love with a pizza delivery girl, and like and like everybody at that age, he can't actually form a coherent sentence to talk to her, or indeed even bring himself to speak to her. So he ends up ordering endless pizza and then just bumbling, bumbling his words in front of her. And so it's a very simple story, but I hope that it will I hope that it will bring people back to that period of their lives, which I, I remember so fondly. <laughs> I could say just just from uh, from experience playing it. Um, unfortunately, I was the older brother. Was my younger brother who always wanted to kind of like tag along and play and do stuff, but he never had the the wherewithal that Gary does to actually run the game by himself. Um, so that here I am, you know, talking about games, and he's out like saving the world as a marine. So <laughs> it didn't scar him then. That's good news. He's not not at all. <laughs> As a weird aside, like uh, his, it, it did scar him so much that 
I used to play Final Fantasy and stuff in front of him. Um, and yeah. so he'd sit by my side and kind of, you know, we'd go through it together. And he says that he finds it absolutely impossible to play one of those games by himself now. Oh, has he got Stockholm Syndrome? Do you know this? Yeah, he, just, he can't do it. He's like, I, I, you know, he needs somebody else there with him. He's got Stockholm Syndrome. That's, that's wonderful. I mean, you know, it's, it was, you know, it was, it was the time of my life. I don't know about you guys, but like, my sort of DNA is as a gamer. Right? It's like everything about my life is about being a gamer. And so it's really, it's an origin story. It's the origin story of how I became a gamer. And, and I think it is for most of us. But the thing that was really interesting is it's a story that is never, as far as I know, been told in video games. Right? It's like when you play most D&D games, D&D video games, they're all about, they're a very literal representation of the action, the fantasy action. But I actually think that's a far less interesting story and a far less sort of emotive story than the experience of playing those games sitting around a dining room table with your friends. And that's the story that we're telling. And I think it's one that's never been told before. And, and I, I think, I, I hope that people find that interesting. But of course, no one's going to care if the game sucks. I mean, that's the, that's the truth of it, right? You know, luckily, uh, luckily it doesn't. <laughs> it's just my opinion. But, I, you know, I think so far you guys have, uh, you guys have done it real well. So with... With Card Hunter itself, um, yeah. you know, obviously you've, you've got the you've got the background story there. What's for everybody who hasn't played it uh, and who should be going to play it right now as they're listening to this? Um, yeah. What 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 what's what's the other part of it? What's, what's the pitch? gameplay part of it? Yeah, so it's yeah. It, it's, it's, a, it's a mashup. It's a, it's a mashup. It's a CCG mashed up with a board, with a board game dungeon crawler. So it's so it's. You know, it's really to look at. It looks like something like it looks like sort of Hero Quest, but the whole action is driven by by cards. And you know, it's kind of it's it's been a super hard design challenge to solve that problem. And it's it's really sort of driven from something that we feel quite strongly, which is that most um, CCGs, most card games, when they've been brought to a video game experience, have really they're really just very literal. Um, computerized versions of a card game. It's almost like you're just sitting at a table and you're seeing the cards being placed in front of you. And um, I mean, I'm not bagging on that because I spend, you know, I spend a ton of time playing those kind of games for fun. But we, what we wanted to do was actually sort of take it to another step and do something a bit different with it. So we, we wondered, we sort of thought, well, CCGs are awesome. And then we thought, you know, tactics-based games are awesome, like Final Fantasy Tactics or XCOM. Those are really cool games. Like, why has nobody ever tried to sort of merge the two? And so we, 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 we found out why no one's ever tried to merge the two, because it's been a complete arsehole to try and make it. <laughs> it and funnily enough, it proves to be bloody hard to make it, go, to make it, make it successful. But, um, you know, we were, we were, as I said earlier, we were unbelievably lucky to have Richard Garfield to be helping with this, because Richard really, you know, he was the sort of champion of the CCG part of the game, which, you know, the hardest thing about it was that um, what I didn't realise until we started working on this is that the... Um, with the collectible card game, that the actual deck building aspect of it is as important as the gameplay itself, and um, that has a very significant impact on the way that you design design the game. Specifically, um, you don't want that game to be too long and too involved. You actually want it to be a fairly brisk experience. And um, so we, you know, we 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 had you know merging those two genres together was incredibly difficult. But I think it's it's actually what it's done is it's created something which is really unlike anything else you've played before. And I'm I'm, I'm very proud of that. You there, guys? It, it certainly works. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, it certainly works. And I mean, especially, like I feel like. 
such a huge nerd, but it's so it, it's so so much a part of my past that uh, not only did I play like you know D and D and have a group and all that, but we also I sp- we spent a year like completely splurging all kinds of money we didn't have into magic. Um, so <laughs> it, it was it was really kind of odd to start up Card Hunter, um, mm-hmm. see what very well could have been a you know dungeon floor map that we laid out on a, on our own hex grid. Right. Um, you know, like on the table and then kind of have those cards fly out and be able to right click on them and see what they do in a very, you know, kind of uh, known style of, of breakdown with the picture and the and the description of everything and to immediately be like, you know, OK, I know what you guys are doing here. This is awesome. Right. Right. Well, that's that's good. That's that's good to hear because it was um, it took us three years to get there. So, <laughs> you know, one of the one of the, <laughs> the one of the ugly truths about making video games, original video games, is um, you, you have to spend a, a lot of time um, building prototypes that are going to be total failures, and then learning from those, and then going on to the next one. So, when you're making new stuff, it just takes a long it takes a long time. And uh, you know, we did a massive amount of prototyping on this game, and uh, I, I hope I hope that. Um, I hope that it that it comes across, um, but you know, it's not for me to say. It's really up to people to play it to determine whether we've succeeded or not. So, now, okay, go, go for it, John. Well, I was just gonna say. So, um, yeah, obviously, this yeah will will hopefully be a huge hit with people that are are familiar with D and D and and dungeon or D and D and Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> nah. All of um, those things. Yeah, all those things. Those two vastly different things. Uh, but D and D and magic. Um, but to somebody like, you know, maybe me who hasn't mm. played either. Yeah. What? Yeah. What's going to happen? It's, yeah. <laughs> that, that, my friend is a $64 million question because if we've made a game that just appeals to guys aged guys age 38 to 42 who grew up playing, playing these games and we, then we will fail uh, totally. And so, you know, the way I sort of, the way I think about this is that, I mean, and I, I do hope I don't sound like a pretentious wanker, but um, I, I think it, it for it to work, okay. you really want it to work like a Pixar. Okay, good. Well, it's, what you're saying is it's a given, right? Okay. Um, you, you want it to work like That's, a Pixar movie, it, which is it, you yeah, want it to work yeah, yeah, on two different that. levels. You want it to work on, you know, you know, it's yeah, it's it's got to yeah, it's got to have an immediate appeal. So anybody, you can just like you can just get into it, you can enjoy it. But then it's got to work on another level. Where it's got to, you know, like when the parents go to a Pixar movie with the kids, and there's something there for them as well. And I think, I, I think that that's, I think that fundamentally. You, you don't have to buy into the experience. You don't have to have lived through that time. But you know, if if the actual moment-to-moment um, gameplay of this sort of tactical tactical mashup with cards is really good, I hope that that will make the game appeal to people that frankly don't care about D and D or growing up in the early eighties. <laughs> All right, good to know. <laughs> you should tell me, Jonathan. You sound like you sound like a very good test case. You're gonna have to. Well, I haven't played it yet, so I don't. I don't know. Yeah. I, you're gonna have to I, check it out. I don't have the review it. copy, so. I don't. Well, I, you know, I can, you ah. do, I can get you one right now, my friend. I can. This is this is how much power I have in my hands. I can get you. <laughs> Give him one. That's you right. know, it's 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 scary as well for the programmers. You know that saying a, a little, little bit of power can be a very dangerous thing. I, I am I am when I'm when I'm in the database filling around with beta codes. I, I am the living expression of that truth. <laughs> Absolute okay. power corrupts. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Well, good. I, I, will, I will definitely give it a shot. And if you hear me just go quiet, you know, halfway through the interview, then... Uh, <laughs> you're playing the game rather than being frustrated and annoyed by my commentary. Okay, that's good to hear. Let me, let me send this to you now. 
<laughs> no, I mean, I would genuinely love to hear what you, hear what you think because we will, we will absolutely fail if you need to have played D&D to enjoy this. But, but I don't, you really don't. And the thing is as well is that here's the other challenge we were sort of working around is that um, I think you want to make something that stands out visually. You want to make something that's really interesting that people are going to p- pick up on because, you know, fantasy is a, is a really cliched um, genre in so many ways and I say it with with absolute love I mean you know what you, what you have is you have either sort of you have two sort of treatments of it you have sort of very traditional Tolkien-esque um, high fantasy or you have in the last sort of 10 years you've got this sort of slightly odd but incredibly visually rich um, sort of manga world of warcraft highly saturated colors treatment of fantasy and you know you don't really get anything between those things and so you know when we we the, the art of card is made by a guy called ben lee and um you know when we sort of sat around talking and thinking about what it should be um you know that that featured very prominent in the discussions it was like well we really want something which which when you play it you know you've never played it before you're looking at something new because i think people are naturally sort of intrigued and drawn to things that that look different i, I certainly am i mean you th- i mean for instance just pulling off the top of my head i mean you think of castle crashers mm-hmm. how incredible you know what a, i mean look castle crashers was golden axe right i mean and I, again i say that with with a great deal of respect and love because I, I adore that game but you you know, it was a work of genius to put this incredible, incredibly rich, unusual art style on top of it. And, um, you know, I think it, it really it made it really appealing. And so that's what we've ho- we're hoping we're doing with this game is that we tr- we're, we're trying to make it look different to everything else in the hope that people respond to to the fact that it's fresh and different. Yeah. Was awesome. that now? Here's a, an odd question. Well, not really an odd question, but was the the kind of almost paper craft people and the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the board game design, was that, uh, intentional or born out of necessity? It was intentional and it went, but it went through a bunch of really interesting, um, iterations. So at one point, and this is before I came on the project, the guys were experimenting with the notion of actually rather than couple cutouts, actually doing them as lead figures. We should oh my have, God. But, yeah, <laughs> that would have been kind of cool, but but actually that that got axed because of necessity. Because what we were going to have to do was find uh, a manufacturer in China and actually make them, and it just got hideously expensive. And so we, mm. so that, so in some respects, yeah, it was it was definitely informed by some constraints. But um, but the idea of it being a board game was was always there from always there from the start. Uh, it was just it was about how we, you know, which which how we chose to interpret that vision, and that that was the thing that changed a bit. Now I'm not I'm not too far into it. Um, was there ever um, like obviously you got the board game, but I mean like like drawing from my own past of having dealt dealt with like tabletop stuff. Um, mm. Was there ever a desire to uh, kind of uh, add things to the board game, like um, you know like, like like towers or pillars or stuff to kind of um, kind of force the line of sight idea that's in there, or did you always want to kind of go flat with it? Yeah, so that was so that's something we we had long arguments, long long arguments about whether to um, whether to sort of show you know people still get quite upset by this is whether to show um, raised terrain and pillars by actually raising them on the on the flat surface um, and we we've we've played around with it but every time we've sort of tried that idea it's just it's looked really ugly I'm afraid so we actually just decided to keep it really simple and and keep it completely flat but but certainly you know adding I think adding a sort of a rich a greater richness to the terrain is something we'd, we'd really want to do in in future future expansions to the game. Well, there's all you know, just just like real D and D, there's always a 
there's always the future for that. So hopefully this uh, yeah this continues well, if, along that path. Well, if there is a future, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if more than you and five other people play the game, I mean, no, I, mean I don't want to, I don't want to be an elven prognosticator here, but I'm hoping it goes real well too. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I've I've kind of I've been doing this a long time, and and I. I, you know, you, the honest truth is you, you never really know. Like, you kind of do your best and you pray and you hope that it's going to work. But you, you don't know. I mean, look, when we did Bioshock, a month before Bioshock came out, I, I was convinced we'd all torched our careers because I couldn't believe that anybody was going to want to buy, a, buy a, a game about, you know, a dystopia with, on the, the writings of Anne Rand. It didn't seem like the most commercial proposition at the time. Um, but um, you just don't know, right? I mean, and then Irrational did other games that were, were really great, like Freedom Force and System Shock 2, and they had amazing reviews and nobody bought them so you you really just don't know so we, we you know we just um we, we're just praying i'm praying a lot right now <laughs> absolutely <laughs> now you mentioned something like that, that people just don't buy them um card hunters free to play yeah um, can you talk a little bit about um kind of what you guys are are, are going after with that route and yeah. how how that's gonna yeah play How's into the game things? yeah well we <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's kind of been a controversial decision because something I didn't know until I really got into this is the depth of feeling that people have towards free-to-play. And, and it kind of totally makes sense to me because I think a lot of people had really bad experiences a lot of, with, with really sort of sketchy business practices of a lot of Facebook games. But for it's, us... They're, they're, it's not the most honest crowd out there. Yeah, well, right. I mean, it's, you know... It, it, you know, if it looks I mean, like, I get they're trying to make money, but, you know, there's yeah. there's a lot of psychology that happens under yeah. the scenes that kind of gives you that real pit of your stomach. It's sketchy, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's it's sketchy and ugly. But the thing is, the way I, I sort of come at it, the way, I mean, there are two parts to this. Is like, I mean, the first part is, you know, wh why are we doing it? And um, there's, there's a very good reason for that, which is, um, you know, the biggest problem any game maker today has is that there are an order of magnitude more games in existence than ever before because of the App Store. There's something like a quarter of a million games on the App Store today. And... Um, you know, if you think the old days, your choice was really limited to what was being displayed in GameStop. And so what that means is that gamers have an outrageous amount of choice, almost like a mind-numbing amount of choice right now. And so unless you're a sort of a, a GTA 5, when you've got like a, an incredible brand and you've got a $50 million marketing budget, you've got this huge problem, which is how the hell do you get people to buy your game? And I had a bit of this experience at, P at PopCap because PopCap was a company that had had this, was selling $20 downloadable PC games forever. And suddenly that market disappeared. And, and we, it was a very difficult transition for us because we, we really believed, uh, as, as we wanted to believe, that if you make a great game, people will buy it. It's like build it and they will come. And we had these really shocking experiences. Like we bought Peggle out on the iPhone and Peggle makes like 200 pounds a day. Like it's, it, it, it hurts me to think of that because, as I said before, Peggle is one of the greatest games of all time. Like why, why is that not selling on the iPhone? And that's because... Um, because people aren't like on the iPhone particularly aren't buying aren't paying for games and they've got like 50,000 100,000 games to look at and so you're just not getting any mind share and so for us the whole free to play thing is is really simple it's about you know if we can get like probably 10 or 20 times more people playing card hunter by giving it away for free which means that they will they basically they'll then go out and tell their friends about it. if they like it they'll tell their friends about it and so it means it's primarily a marketing tool for us as a way of building an audience okay so that's that's the first part and um yeah. I was so how, how do you guys come out on top with this 
<laughs> I don't know because we're giving a well. I, I sort of know and I don't know. I mean, I think there were there were two ways to there. Were, it's it's an incredibly hard thing to do design a free to play game because it's it's you know you're you're always on the knife edge of doing one of two one of two two things that will mean that you'll fail, which is on the the sort of more common case, which is to create a game which is essentially um, uh, which is essentially a, a, a bag of really underhanded tricks to create addiction in order to fleece people of their money um, uh, and uh, at the expense of the actual gameplay quality and your soul. Okay, so if we do that, yes. we'll, right? Or on the other hand, you create a, a, a free-to-play game um, which is basically free and uh, nobody pays you any money for it. And uh, then you'll fail because you won't make any money and um, you, you, won't be able to, you, you won't be able to feed yourself and your family and that will be that. And so we, um, our sort of take on it is, you know, we, is this. I think if you, it's always better to be on the second side of that equation than the first side of that, right? Like, you know, frankly, if we were doing this to make huge amounts of money, I wouldn't have left EA with my incredible job with, with, with a big big office and a secretary and, and, and a small army of people working for me. And I certainly wouldn't be making um, a browser-based game, which is an homage to D&D in the, the late 70s <laughs> and early 80s. Yeah. So, so if you're going to do it, like, do, you know, make sure that you know why you're doing it. And so for us, it's always been about make something, make something amazing, uh, hope that people really respond to that, and then hope that they will, they will have a, re- a reaction that I had when I played League of Legends for the first time, which is to feel that I'd had such an incredible time playing the game that I actually wanted to support the developer so that they could continue to kind of make the kind of game that I wanted to play. And so for us, really the free-to-play stuff, I, I sort of see it as like a tip jar. It's like, look, if you've had a great, you know, you can play, I think 90, 95% of this game for free. Um, you can never spend a cent and you can have an amazing game, um, amazing experience, and you can play on a level playing surface against other people. And hopefully if you really like what we're doing and you've enjoyed the game, then support us and give us some money, but you really don't have to. And uh, I, you know, honestly, I don't know if that strategy is going to work. No one knows, but I, but it's certainly, it's the one that I feel best about because I don't, you know, for, for us, it's always going to be about making amazing things first and foremost. And, um, you know, if that comes at the expense of, of commercial success and so be it, but I, I really hope that we can, I really hope that we can somehow balance those two things and make something that people love and, and, but at the same time, something that will allow us to keep on making Cult Hunter for on and on, because that's what we'd love to do. Mm-hmm. Well, at the risk of sounding like I'm climbing under your desk right now, I, I think <laughs> it's working. Uh, so. <laughs> I wondered what that odd thing was going on. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's not the devil dog. It's, uh, <laughs> Ryan, don't it's, fondle it's, the interviewees. God, man. <laughs> How many times do I have to tell you? Saying that I, I played it, I did, and I, I, I hate saying this over and over again, but I, I think you guys did okay. I hope so. You know, it's been really hard, guys. I've been... It, it, people... The thing is, there is a real, a visceral, a visceral hatred towards free-to-play. Like so many times, I go like we had these amazing previews on things like Game Informer and Euro, Eurogamer and The Verge, and and I read them and I'm just so happy when I read them. And I go down to the comments and it just feels like I'm getting stabbed because you get, people say this looks amazing, but it's free-to-play. I'm never going to touch it. And and it's because people are so disgusted by what's happened before. But for me, the fact that the fact that World of Tanks and League of Legends exist and as and they are such amazing games and you can have such an amazing time with both those games for free proves to me that it can be done. So I don't think I don't think it's the there's nothing inherently evil about the business model. It's about how it's applied. And so I, I, I yeah sorry no, no for sure I, I mean absolutely I mean I, I'll tell you 
like straight up the very first time when I started kind of tooling around with it um, and looking at Card Hunter and I saw the gold at the top and I was like, okay, you sell things, you get gold, I get how this works. And then I saw the pizza slices and I'm like, oh, what happens when I kick on the pizza slices? And I'm like, oh, money. Okay, that's how this is going to play. Right. But then as I kind of went further on, that that stuff i could see that that really wasn't the way things were being aimed at right and that and that stopped coloring that portion of it for me yeah but you started you had that initial reaction you thought these absolutely yeah capitalist pigs are going to use neuro-linguistic programming to create create addictive patterns in my in in my (laughs) life and i I, before i know i'm going to be a whale so that and and why do i have to pay for my memories you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know but you know, but you know, it's it's incredibly hard thing to do to do well because, of course, you know the essence of the you know the game, the multiplayer game, is creating a um, a level playing surface where you know if you if you're not you know people that haven't paid any money feel that they can compete against the people that spend a lot of money, and um, and it's going to be fair. And you know, there's an incredible debate around this in the forums. But the thing the thing that is most heartening to me is that the you know the number one I think the number one player Pender and the guy that used to be the number one player, Lance, neither of them has spent any money on getting on getting new equipment in the game. So so like that makes me feel good, right? That makes me feel that we've actually got the balance of the game right, that the that the business model hasn't screwed up the game itself. And I think that's because well, the... everything is available technically for gold. Yeah. Right? Well, the... that being the currency of the uh, of the, the the at least the two shops that I've seen so far. Yeah, and so we should explain that that our hard currency is called pizza. Because um, we, we're taking our game very seriously, obviously. Um, it's, I mean, it's it's. The, I think the way the way it works really well is that you look at something like World of Tanks, which is brilliant. Which is it, the game says to the gamer, it says, look, you can pay us one or two ways with your time or with or with or with money. It's really up to you. And so that's really been the driving principle um, for for the design of of that system. And I, I think that feels kind of fair to me, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, how'd you guys? How'd you guys go? Speaking, you know, I, I mentioned the stores where you, per, you you kind of purchase equipment. Yeah. How did you guys decide that you were going to tie the deck building aspect of it to your your you know your 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 character's actual equipment itself, rather than making that like you know card by card kind of piecemeal? Yeah. So so that was John's idea, and I think it's a really good idea and a really an original idea and it it came from a couple of it came from a couple of places i mean fundamentally it came from the this kind of ongoing discussion about the balance of the game as a between it being a ccg and being a being a, a tactics game but but the the second um driving sort of motivating force behind it was that um we sort of feel that deck building is in is a is a really pretty terrifying thing for most yes. people um, like I, I'm, I consider myself a, a pretty hardcore nerd, and uh, I, I remember going around to my brother's house, and he had, you know, Magic the Gathering. He got into Magic the Gathering, and he had all these these books. Like I remember this one called Deeper Magic, and I remember just looking at it, and there was math in there. I mean, math. Yep. Like I don't, I don't like. <laughs> look, I want to be. If I'm, look, if I'm gonna have to do math to play a game, I, I need someone to pay me. Right. That's a, that feels like a job, right? <laughs> but the thing, but the thing is, is that you know, there's it's it's a it's a pretty it's a really hardcore and intense experience for a lot of people, and so we wanted to simplify the deck building experience somewhat um, by attaching cards in the game. You attach cards. The cards are attached to pieces. 
pieces of equipment, which you then, you know, you, each, your party is contained to three characters, and each character has a bunch of equipment slots, and you put pieces of equipment in there, and but each of those pieces of equipment has a bunch of cards on it, and so that actually creates your deck. And so it, it, it's really about simplifying the deck building experience. But it's also about another thing, which is, you know, strategy games are, the most important thing in strategy games are interesting decisions. And, you know, where decisions get most interesting is where, there are trade-offs to be made. And so one of the things that we've done in the game is that lots of equipment, that we've added these things called drawback cards, which are black cards, and they do bad things to you. And so <laughs> very often in the game, you will find you have an amazing piece of equipment, like an amazing sword that has two incredible attacking cards on it, and then it has some awful drawback card on it. And that creates this wonderful tension in the deck building where you're like, oh, I want that, but I don't want that in my, in my hand. Please don't, so, please don't come out. Please don't come out. Please don't come out. Yeah, right. And then, yeah, that's so, so that, so those, you know, those are the sort of things that we, we were thinking about. And uh, yeah, I'd be interested to see if people, how people respond to that and if they like that, because I think it's a, it's a very original feature that I haven't seen anywhere else. It, it's, you know, it, it is, it's, especially with that, the, the concept of having kind of a bad card in there because when uh, especially just going back to my experience on like you know building decks for magic and i had uh my best friend uh, uh dave um who i played magic with for that that crazy year and spent an absorbent amount of money with it um he was like a deck building savant that man could look at cards and he could tell you exactly what you could do with them without needing to resort to math or anything like that he had this yeah. horrible nightmare inducing elven like trample deck that was just bad bad news but having that kind of that bad card in there like that's not something that you'd ever do to yourself but when you balance you have to kind of balance it because you want that sword and you want those attacks that make that 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 really gives it kind of that uh that 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 almost gambling flavor to it Right, and also, but also is another interesting thing. It's something we learned from from Richard Garfield is that, you know, a lot of the most interesting uh, cards in Magic are the ones that, when that they can do things that don't aren't always obviously apparent. There's a sort of a, a secondary application for them in conjunction with other things, and that is true for some of these drawback cards as well. Is that you can there are ways that you can use them. Um, in conjunction with others in, in, in certain situations where they will actually end up being beneficial. And so, so yeah, I think we've, we've tried really hard to sort of create that, that kind of magic-like depth around, the, around those combination of cards, which I think is, is the brilliance of magic. And I, I mean, I've I'm, I'm, I'm no doubt that magic is one of the greatest games of any type ever made by anyone anywhere. And so um, if we can perhaps take some of that, some of that and, and adapt it to what we're doing, then, then hopefully we'll be in the right direction. Now uh, we mentioned that you you have you've got three your, your party is made up of three people um yeah. and and I really like the way that you kind of introduce uh the classes one by one um yeah. even though the the priest is kind of thrown in there at the end like listen you know he heals just deal with it um what what kind of made you decide to go with those three kind of archetypes yeah. and and are there plans for future classes yeah there there definitely are plans for future classes like it's it's something people really want we'd love to make say add a rogue to the mix because i think that would be super cool and then potentially even add some sort of some some sort of mashup characters like paladins and rangers um you know i think they're the sort of classic archetypes aren't they you know the the tank the healer and the glass cannon and you know we thought it was a a really good place to start and you know obviously they're, they're three very strongly defined archetypes which um we thought would create some interesting strategies 
um, particularly in multiplayer, because of course you don't need to play with with one of each. Like you can create, you know, all, you know, all warrior parties, all elf parties, sorry, all warrior parties, or all priest parties, or any combination thereof. And so we we just, you know, it's. I think the the asymmetry between the characters is 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 really uh, between those classes is is well is well defined and well understood by people. And so we thought that was a really good place to start. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, especially and, and I think too with the. Uh... Uh, with the way that the three kind of work in conjunction that you kind of know where they are, where if you get to classes like the first thing I was looking for was a rogue. Um, I, and that that's just because the, the, you know, the whole backstab notion. And especially when you guys introduce the, um, the fact that your, yeah. your little paper figures, they do have a front and a back and it means different things. Yeah. Uh, and the enemies react in different ways when you hit them in the front or the back. Um, yeah. So it does, there's definitely especially you know uh, like for the, the the folks who love XCOM there is a very uh tactical sense to the the movement um and and what you're able to do um when you line your guys up right and when you you know when you use crazy things like flanking people or um yeah. you know I had a chance to hide somebody behind a pillar against that big dragon that you fight at the beginning right uh, it was yeah, and that was, you know, honestly, um, the whole notion of facing was one of the hardest um, design problems we had because we used to have a much more involved system, um, and uh, we had to simplify it. And of course, you know, um, that notion, uh, the, the notion of, um, of of space and position, is so critical to making this thing work because otherwise it's just a, it's just a card game where you're just playing cards against each other so it's really the thing that makes it ta- inherently tactical and makes it feel like a board game but we but we had to we had to implement it in a in a way where you know the game still moves along at a really good pace and a good crack and i think i personally think the thing that's best about the game is the, is is the speed at which it moves like you can play a whole game of card under 15 minutes and i think to to get that sort of rhythm and flow without sacrificing the depth of the game is an unbelievably difficult thing to to do and it will come as no surprise to you that early iterations and prototypes of card hunter took like an hour an hour and a half to play and uh, you know that was you too know, long now, it was just too long yeah, regarding that regarding that time now do you think that comes across or, or, or the, the shortened amount of time or the real quick sessions comes from the fact that um, it's one move and then to the other person and then one move and the other person rather than kind of pulling the magic move where you get to kind of use as much as you can all at once? It's hundreds of little things, actually, and little touches. I mean, yeah, it's 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 fundamentally driven by the number of characters that you have and the number of a number of cards in your hand and the number versus the number of people you're playing against but it's it's actually lots of little things like lots of like the the animation of the animation of the cards the speed at which the cards are played at you know the animation on the board you know the ui all of those things are there are, are trying to support that sense of 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 movement and drama and um i you know i i remember when i picked it up for the first time and that was the thing that really really struck me because it's so easy to make a you know a turn-based game, which is just bogged down, takes forever. And I say that as a as a huge fan of tactic, of the turn-based games and tactics games of all of all of all forms and shapes. And it's just trying to get that game that really cracks on at that pace is is super difficult and takes a lot of it actually takes a lot of discipline because it's all about actually cutting cutting features and not adding features to the game. And uh, I, you know, I, I hope that people I hope that people will enjoy that and appreciate that. And uh, because it was very very difficult thing to achieve. Um, on the writing side of it, mm. how was it trying to 
to kind of balance almost two stories because you've got Gary's story, which is definitely yep. kind of the the one that overarchs everything. Um, yeah. But then you also have like very classic, like mm. the orcs are invading, and mm. they, there's little snippets before you go into each of your each of your ground battles and each of the actual um, the mm. each of the actual card hunter matches. Um, yeah. Kind of how was that like setting those up? It was impossible. So, it was a, before, it was like... you, before you fully answer that, though, <laughs> does Card Hunter have ten thousand years of history written by <laughs> R.A. Salvatore? I'm afraid it, I can't. I can't oh. say it. Does. Sorry, guys. Oh man, sorry. Failure. Is, is that uh, it? Is that it? I, I don't I know. Dead? That didn't help uh, Thirty Eight Studios any. <laughs> I'm, 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 de- I'm dead to you, right? I'm dead to you. Like one of the things, Ken Levine, the story always. Um, I always remember is he talks about when he came up with the original concept for Thief and original story for Thief. And he said that, you know, he realized that it was more interesting to tell a story about the Moss Arrow than it was to tell a story about, you know, something about in the world that you were never going to see. And, and that's sort of really, you know, our, our philosophy is it's, you know, the, the stuff that you, the stuff that's interesting to the player is the stuff that affects him and the stuff that he's exposed to. Like having to read through loads of lore and understand that stuff, it has no relevance in the gameplay. He's not necessarily going to be interested in it. Um, having said that, um, I, I, I do, I, I am not entirely happy with the end result of Card Hunter's story, and that's because um, we, we had to do something that was very, very difficult. We had to sort of, it was almost like a, it was almost like a, a three-level problem, um, which is we had to make good, interesting stories for the for the, the adventures. So, i.e., they're like D and D modules. We had to come up with a good, had to have a good story for the campaign, um, linking them all together. And then we had to come up with this kind of meta story around Gary, the DM, and you know Karen, the pizza girl, and Melvin, Melvin, the older brother. And invariably, you know, it, it just didn't work. Uh, and it was compounded by the fact that. By the time I came to write the story, the adventures had already been made. <laughs> so, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, the adventures were made. Yeah, so it was. I mean, it was like I, I actually did my head in for a bit, trying to wrestle with this sort of this multi-dimensional problem. And so, mm-hmm. what we ended up having to do was, was as always, simplify something and and make a sacrifice. And the, the thing that was sacrificed in that um, was the 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 overarching fantasy storyline that would link link these things together as a campaign and i'm really disappointed about it because you know for me the experience of, of playing D growing up was was that sort of that campaign that went on forever and and linked these things together but it was just impossible because i had we had 55 50 hold on how many adventures 55 different adventures and trying to string a fantasy storyline around these things that already existed it just didn't it just wasn't possible okay. um and and we didn't really have the tools to do it so but having said that what i'm what i'm, I'm desperately trying to do is i'm, I'm waging a, a conspiracy against john che to let me keep on make to work on some secretive um adventures um, for an expansion and, and what i'm going to try and do in that is try to address this problem by actually create by actually controversially creating the levels at the same time as in the story so having these things linked together um which i think could be super cool and then actually also having players making choices about which adventures to go on and that will then you know actually be meaningful and you won't actually be able to access other adventures and so on in the sort of very sort of traditional rpg structure but yeah it was a it was um a bit of a, a bit of a headache to be honest with you well, well, not to not to say that I'm being called in the middle of the night, but mm. to defend your point against mm. you know Che, who's listening, um, <laughs> that kind of experience having that not only the the DM that kind of connects everything together, but having mm. one that that almost gets kind of involved in what's happening, 
yeah. and like you know later levels and kind of starts to sculpt things based on maybe his frustrations with the pizza mm. girl that very important well i don't want to ruin the story for you but there is there, there is some <laughs> there, uh, there is some okay. let's say um let's say that real life and the fantasy storyline and overlap at a certain point that certain personalities allow their, their real world feelings to be expressed in game so as as you would have named Melvino, well, I wouldn't want to ruin the surprise for you, but uh, yeah, please don't, because that's, that's awesome. <laughs> that do, do, do. Just just push on and, and have a, have a look. But um, yeah, it, look the 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 individual modules. I, I had a, a really um, wonderful uh, experience of about two weeks of getting all my old D&D out and reading all the original adventures by Gygax and trying to, trying to get a sense of how the, you know, what the tone was and, and how they sort of felt. And, um, I, I, yeah, I really, you know, Bunch has been working on the story and tried to really sort of capture that feeling. Cause it was very sort of like hot and heavy, wasn't it? The early D&D stuff. It was kind of like, really, it was like everything it was, was very serious. Very yeah, serious. It, yeah, it was very. It took itself very seriously that these were these were life and death matters that your, you know, your halfling named Twinkle Toes was getting involved with, <laughs> which kind of added to the comedy of it, didn't it? Like he's I, like Gax writes like a school teacher. He's kind of like it's kind of very. He's got a very grave tone, and he gets he gets kind of really obsessed by these it, little details, doesn't he? Absolutely, the Lovecraft of fantasy. It was very high-handed and. This is coming from a very serious place. Everybody is going to die, and it was very much up to the the group of people that were there, um, and just the bullshitting that occurred that actually added life to those things. Yeah, but that's also quite sad when you go back and it's it, when you go back and look at them. Like the the gap between your memory of them and what they actually were is very is 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 big. And of course, it's because you know we've been spoiled in the last thirty years. There've been all these you know fantasy and entertainment nerd entertainment has has evolved and got so much better than it was but it but it but it but it's it so you know it's a bit like going back and watching a 70s disaster movie and and realizing you know it's ruined by all the special effects aren't up to date but but the you know the spirit of it is there and we wanted to capture capture that that spirit of it Uh, and uh I, i you know i hope that comes across I, I definitely think it does. I, I, I'm like I said, so far an hour and a half into it, I'm I'm very much enjoying it, and I I, I really want to see where it goes. Uh, the 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 interesting kind of like almost like free to playness of it, where uh, um uh, now I I'm right in assuming because I think I read this correctly that the actual kind of challenges slash adventures themselves are kind of reset daily, so you, you can go back through like kind of ones that you've already done. Yeah. For yeah. more loot and such. Yeah. You can- okay. Yeah, exactly. You can grind the loot, and and of course the thing is, is the, the other part is that there's you can play multiplayer, you know, as much as you want on any given day. And we have you get we've got a kind of a really cool rewards mechanism where you can, you know, you get a treasure chest for the, your first victory of the day in multiplayer, and then it scales and gets bigger and bigger. And if you get to like 20 victories in a day, um, then you're going to get like you get like an epic chest, I think. And so you know this. There's a ton of stuff. I mean, there's a huge amount of stuff in the game. We, you know, arguably we've done too much. And so there's 155 battles. <laughs> yeah, 155 battles. Like that's a lot. That's a lot of. That's a lot. And so, 
it makes testing it quite challenging, as you can imagine. My, go- my girlfriend is, is, you know, that's the thing about making video games that you don't sort of realize is that you, you have to spend hundreds of, like, thousands of hours playing it. And the, the sound effects in Card Hunter are super goofy. And so, like, <laughs> Gary's little, oh. Yeah, like, I'm sitting here late at night and my poor girlfriend can hear these kind of like hoots and growls and kind of grunts and Gary laughing and stuff. And my, my, my poor girlfriend <laughs> yeah. kind of, you know, just getting driven around the bend by it at this stage. So. Uh, Multiplayer-wise, um, yeah. is there, I, you know, I, I, is there matchmaking? Is is my first is my first card hunter match gonna automatically put me against the number one player? So I get that initial taste of blood in my mouth real quick. I hope, I hope not. Um, so okay. we, no, that's honestly that's that's a super that's a super interesting and hard challenge is to get the ma- the matchmaking right. You, you look at things like World of Tanks. Like the matchmaking algorithm is 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 quite brilliant in in many ways. And um, so we we've tried to sort of work around those problems. So you know the first game that you ever play a multiplayer will pitch you against an AI opponent. Gary will play you. So we hope that that will kind of ease you in a little bit. And then after that, what we do is we. We copy the chess ELO system. You know the ELO system that chess has, which gives you a rating of, you know, like in the hundreds up to a couple of thousand. And, okay. um, yeah, so we give you an ELO rating based on your performance, and then we try to match you up against other people with a similar ELO rating. Mm-hmm. It's, not perf- it's not a perfect system, um, but generally speaking, you're going to play somebody who's the same, the same standard as you. But it's, of are, course, are you know... Are turns timed? Yeah, so we put a we put a timer in there as well. So we put um, at the moment we put a there's a each game takes you've got a, basically a chess clock. You've got a 20 minute chess clock, and so which is actually kind of cool because what it means is time becomes a resource. So when you're so rather than sitting there being annoyed when your opponent is taking forever to choose his card, it actually becomes quite a good thing because it means he's running his own clock down. So. There's a few ways that people can work have been sort of working around it and cheating, which is always always a problem with online games. But um, I'm, we're pretty happy with the system. I think it I think it makes for makes for a pretty fun multiplayer experience. Well, that's certainly the human element of it. You never know how well something's going to do until you let people just run wild with it. Yeah, right, absolutely. But people are. I mean, it's a super friendly, super friendly. Um, group at the moment we don't know because what it's gonna be like when when we actually release the game uh which is going to happen pretty soon uh but we've we've had about fifty thousand people come through and and play in the beta and you know the community has been really really good really really nice group of people actually that's good to hear yeah that, that's good to hear especially for for first timers coming in people looking to just get in there because um, the, the, some of the other games you mentioned like league of legends they are not known for They're their scary. uh yeah yeah, for for letting people in, you know, free. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I wonder why that is. I don't, I don't know why that is. I mean, I um, what, why is that? Is it the kind of game? What is you know what determines how what, how nice a community is? I don't know. I'd be interested to know what you think. Yeah, as far as what determines, uh, you know, it, it League of Legends itself is very based around kind of the tournament scene, mm. um, and about kind of getting people involved in that, and people seem to take that very seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, so I, I, if I, you I, come in and you're not ready for, you know, prime time right away, uh, you are a hindrance and <laughs> not looked upon fondly. Maybe it's because competitive co-op, right? I suppose that's, yeah. that's right. Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with how, how exclusive the group that's playing the game feels that they are. Because right. the more exclusive that they think they are, the more they don't want outsiders coming in. Right. Or what they, what they see as outsiders. Yeah. 
Well, I, I get a bit of this when I play World of Tanks. I could get get abused. Like the classic is somebody starts shouting. I love this. They say, "Uninstall the game! Uninstall the game, Joe, Joe McDonough! You're so bad!" You know, like people get so upset, don't they? They get really angry. Yeah, they do. They, do. <laughs> they get you get really like I actually played. I sw- I played two games of World of Tanks last night, and I just switched off because I started getting abused. And I thought, you know. Ah, you know, I don't need this in my life. But... It's, it's just not worth it. And I really don't understand why why people get so, like, I mean, I've been worked up about stuff, but never to the point where I'm like, oh, this person just needs to fucking quit right now. I, I, I can't I... deal with this. I'm going to tell him this in words that I've never used before. Well, I hate. To, I wish I could say I've never rage quit before, but I hate to say I have. So I, I kind of know, what it, I know where it's coming from, right? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. No, come on. Anybody who's plays who's played any kind of video games at all in the last twenty years has rage quit at least once over something. <laughs> my, my my favorite rage quit story is my my brother actually rage quit his D and D group uh, a, a couple of years ago <laughs> over 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 an argument over loot, and I, I believe he he oh. take the guy out on the street and give him a pu- and punch him in the face. <laughs> you got to realize my brother is was forty two. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, it's pretty kind of epic, isn't it? And um, yes, we, yes. We, so we, there may be some rage quitting. In, in, yeah, in, I, mean, in I, I was a WoW player for a number of years, so I, I, I know like the uh, the loot arguments, but I, yeah. I swear I've never had one of those at a D and D game with like surrounded by friends. <laughs> that's yeah, fantastic. That's great. That's great. <laughs> well, there, there, may, there may be a rage quitting experience in Card Hunter, but I'm, I'm gonna let you find that out for yourselves. I, 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 I wait to see. <laughs> Uh, you got anything else, Jonathan? No, no. I think it's time for the end game. All right, let's do it. Uh, yeah, we I like to right, we like to end our our interviews with a little bit of a a, a questionnaire, uh, something that I that I got inspired by um, uh, James Lipton and the uh, Actor Studio. Um, up until now, we've been toying with a bunch of names. Um, last week's name uh, was laughed at by my wife, so it's never going to be mentioned again. It was um, the Tyler one... interrogation. Oh, God, you mentioned it. Oh. <laughs> I did. I mentioned it. <laughs> Not good. Yeah, it, it, strike that from the record. Um, however. No, I this edit one... this. It's staying yeah. in. That's, oh, God. <laughs> this one, however, was not met with scorn or derision of any kind, and I was told it was much better. So uh, we're calling these questions the end game. Um, and uh, here we go. Uh, first question. Uh, in video games, who is your favorite protagonist? Oh, that is a very difficult one, isn't it? There's so many to I, choose from. I don't from. pull punches with these. No, you don't. You've gone for the. You put me on the spot there. I don't. I mean, Gordon Freeman is just a really boring answer. I don't want to say that, but he's he's a clown. I mean, can I change it and tell you who my favorite antagonist is? No. That's the, the next question. That's the next question. I can't. So, uh, yes. Because <laughs> I remember, I much prefer the bad guys. Let's get onto that one. I'm going to say Gordon Freeman and play it safe. Okay. Done. Favorite antagonist. Flip the coin. Come on. It's, it's got to be Shodan, right? It's got to be Shodan from System Shock 2. Mm. There's no, there is no better villain in the history of video games than, than than Shodan. If you don't know who Shodan is, go and listen to Shodan on on YouTube. There's still, it's still an absolute classic. <laughs> well done. Okay. Sure. Um, what's your least favorite video game trope? Oh uh, yeah, I've got I've got one that I hate, which is um, 
every uh, space marines uh, who say five 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 in the pipe because that's what um, that's what they. <laughs> it's I think it's actually illegal to make a space marine a movie a game without them ripping off without them ripping off aliens and so I yeah <laughs> anything anything that smells of aliens which by the way is a great movie I, I, I'm I, it makes me want to want to flee. <laughs> It, I, I, speaking of aliens, which is hilarious, um, I was watching a uh, 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 quick look of uh, the Splinter Cell Blacklist, yeah. and one of the guys says, "What? You couldn't just nuke them from orbit?" I and, just yeah, the two guys watching like, "Come on, really? Do we constantly have to go back to aliens?" But the thing is, is I saw Aliens again recently, and it's absolutely amazing. I hadn't seen it for years. It's, it is it is truly one of the great sci-fi movies. But it's mm-hmm. like. I just don't want to be. I just every. I don't want it to always be aliens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> find something else, guys. You know, it's, this is not right. the only war movie that ever that's, happened. That's that's right. It's not a trope, but it's something else that annoys me. Is when when you have uh, we have really um, poor voice acting with Americans pretending to be foreigners with mm. terrible accents. That always yeah. makes me so particularly English. It's like it's like listening to Dick Van Dyke. It's like, oh blimey governor <laughs> like, What is this? What is this like? Mary Poppins? I, I I would agree with that except for in cases like um Just Cause Two, where it's obviously bad on purpose and yeah. it's that much better. <laughs> is that much yeah, better because but, of it? But it's not always clear if it's a joke or not, is it? Yeah, you're never absolutely. quite sure. Like if it is a joke, I applaud that. But it's like, are they being serious or is this just like yeah. kind of like Bora, right? Oh gosh, yeah, exactly that kind of thing. Where it's just there to make you uncomfortable. Exactly. <laughs> All right, next next question. Oh, this is a good one. Yeah. Um, what was your least favorite part of Bioshock's story? The ending. I think the ending is atrocious, and I think we all we all feel that. I mean, the the fight, the boss monster fight at the end was just yeah. was a mistake, and we all we all recognise that. And uh, yeah, yeah, it su- It really sucked. I I cannot argue with that one. <laughs> <laughs> An angry phone call from Ken Levine later. No, he won't. He believes that. Too. <laughs> he, he thinks that. He thinks that too. So yeah, we we all feel quite strongly about that. I, I do like the idea that Ken Levine has listening devices and he's picking up on this now so that you will get a call later. That 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 does sound kind of cool. So, hi, Ken. How you doing? Uh, if you could try any other profession, what yeah. would you like to attempt? That's a good one, isn't it? Uh, ooh. Ooh, 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 ooh. Well, I, look, this is going to shock you, but I, I actually did theology at university uh, and trained to be a trained. To, well, I wasn't training, but I thought seriously about becoming an Anglican clergyman, which is bizarre and hilarious. Since I then sp- spent most of my career having meetings about blood and shooting people. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. You know, I would really like to. I'd really like to give writing a go, maybe at some time, because I can't imagine that writing in movies or or or, or TV is anywhere near as, as technically challenging as video games. And I'd love to, I, I sort of have a, a, fa- a half-formed fantasy about whether I could pull that off. And, and um, maybe being a games journalist could be cool. Maybe actually like going out and, and seeing games and looking at games in production and, and interviewing people would be really interesting as well. Hey, I like interviewing people. So. Yeah? We have fun with it. If you figure out how to monetize that on a weekly basis, you please free feel play. free to let us know. Absolutely. <laughs> free to play it, yeah. Free to play it. We'll be shouting if we're angry with you. You'll get the rest of this interview after you pay us two pizza. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is on the table right here. It goes silent. 
All right. And finally, the last question. Um, at, at the end of our lives, when we reach the gates of the Mushroom Kingdom, and mm. Toad looks over the book with all of our deeds in it, what would you like him to say to you? Oh, good God. Well, I... I oh, what would I like him to say? Oh, man. These are heavy. It's some heavy stuff going on here. <laughs> well, I, I... I originally called this the lightning round, and you can see how that didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> I would like him to say you... All the game you 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 tried to make amazing games. You probably almost certainly didn't succeed most of the time. But on on the, on an occasion occasion occasional moment, you actually made something that really people loved and moved people. And that's 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 why I do what I do. And hopefully hopefully God willing, be able to I'll be around long enough to actually and have the luck required to make some things that people really like. I think you're doing okay so far. <laughs> hey, you don't, listen, you, have, you don't see the bodies that are buried, right? You haven't seen the turkeys, right? I believe me. For every Bioshock, there's at least five or six absolutely appalling games that we've never seen the light of day. And and I'm and I'm not about to uh, get those bodies out on air. Let me tell you. <laughs> the skeletons in your in your gaming closet are your own. I'm not about to go dig it. <laughs> No, oh, <laughs> very well hidden, unfortunately. So right. they can find them on the internet. No, I mean, yeah, look, you know, it's good to, it's really good to work on some terrible things because you realise how how easy it is to make bad things, and you realise how much luck is involved, and it makes you appreciate the, the good things so much more, and it makes you not want to waste time working on bad things because you don't have any more games you got left in you, right? Certainly, it's the same thing from a gaming perspective. You know, just yeah. just from the other side of, of not making games but playing them. If yeah. if you don't play some duds sometimes, uh, and you only go for those big, you know, five star AAA things, eventually those trees start to look pretty rotten too. Well, yeah, you gotta... it's, it's crazy gonna be... how critical you can be of of really well made games just because you lose perspective of what a bad game is. Right, I I totally agree with that. Well, go and look at my back catalog, and that will give you some perspective. <laughs> <laughs> well thank you guys it's been it's been a delight i've really enjoyed the chat today well thank you for for joining us today before we head out uh if you could just tell us when and where we can get our hands on card hunter yeah so you can go to card hunter all one word cardhunter.com uh, and we're taking sign-ups for the open open close beta right now and you'll get in almost immediately and the game's <laughs> going to go live very soon we're looking to make a, an announcement in the next uh week or so about when we're going to go live and uh yeah please come and check it out and see if you like it awesome all right well thanks again for joining us i hope everything goes great with card hunter uh look forward to getting my hands on it and playing some uh you know and letting you know my thoughts as a non D and excellent i look forward to hearing them very much and it's been a real <laughs> pleasure thank you gentlemen i really appreciate it have a good one have a good one take care guys